0: I've been reading a great book the last couple of weeks called Over the Edge of the World. It's the story of Ferdinand Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe, a three-year odyssey that began in 1519 when uh, the Portuguese sailor and explorer Ferdinand Magellan set out from Spain with an armada of five ships to prove that it would be possible to reach the east... By going west. And so Magellan and his five ships set sail across the Atlantic Ocean. They reached the shores of the uh, South American continent. They started making their way down the South American continent. As they were journeying down the South America, American continent. Now, keep in mind, this was taking place over the span of months. I mean, it was basically six months for them to get from the, the tip of South America down to the bottom. And uh, in that time, they lost one ship to a shipwreck that ran aground on the, the rocks that were hidden underneath the surface of the ocean. Now, keep in mind, remember what they were doing, they were exploring for a passageway through the South American continent to get to the Pacific Ocean. There there were rumors that there was a passageway from the Atlantic to the Pacific, a shortcut, and so they were exploring the coastline, and the problem was, in that day and age, they didn't have depth finders, they didn't have you know long-range radar and sonar, so they had to basically hug the coastline and explore every little bay, every inlet, every river, wondering if that was the entrance into the Pacific. Now, you can imagine how fraught with peril that would be, you know, the potential to run aground on sandbars or reefs or rocks. Well, well, they ended up losing one ship on, off the coast of South America. The other ship, uh, the, the, uh, a second ship, mutinied and returned to Spain The other three ships eventually found the Strait of Magellan at the bottom of South America, crossed into the Pacific Ocean, made their way up to the Philippine Islands in the Pacific Ocean. Another ship was lost there because it was rotted and so damaged over the course of two years out in the open ocean, they basically just had to abandon it. So now they're down to two ships... The fourth ship was attacked by natives in the Philippines where Magellan himself died fighting for his life. The crew had gone from five ships, 260 men, all the way down to a final group of 18 survivors in a single ship that ultimately made its way back to Spain. Can you imagine that? I mean, like, what an epic adventure this was. And again, it was all to prove that you could reach the East by going west. 260 men down to 18 that finally uh, finished the voyage three years later, making it back to Spain. Now, one of the things that I, f- I found really interesting, uh, it, something that was new to me that I had never considered when I, as I've been reading this story, Magellan was almost maniacally obsessed with taking depth findings as they were going along their way on the journey. In fact, that was one of the reasons why the journey was so slow, because they were stopping regularly, taking soundings where they would lower a sounding line down into the floor of the ocean to figure out how deep they were, because their biggest concern, I mean, think about all the things you'd have to be concerned about on a three-year journey across the ocean, right? Where are we going to get food? Is it safe? You know, but, but their biggest concern wasn't storms or hurricanes or natives on the on the mainlands. No, their biggest concern was running. A ground. where are they going to hit rocks where are they going to hit reefs where they going to run into the sandy shoals because all it would take is one ship to run aground and the ship would be lost and so they were basically obsessive compulsive about dropping sounding lines into the ocean to take depth findings and uh, it's interesting I was thinking about that this week because it's very similar to what we find in our passage this morning in the book of Colossians where the Apostle Paul provides for us today three warnings so that we don't run aground, so that we don't shipwreck our faith. The Apostle Paul takes soundings, if you will, of three dangers that we can face as Christians. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember in chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, we talked about last week how you can have a thriving faith. And, and if you remember from last week, Paul has basically charted a course for us for smooth sailing into the oceans of a thriving faith with Jesus Christ. We talked about last week how it's all about Jesus. And Paul says keep your focus on Jesus and find your identity in Jesus and you're going to experience life uh, in a faith that thrives smooth sailing with Jesus Christ. But today, as we continue on in chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, what we're going to, I'm sorry, verses 16 through 23, what we're going to discover is that Paul says there are three dangers that we need to be aware of. As we're sailing the oceans of faith and riding the currents with Jesus, there are three dangers that we need to be aware of that can lead us to experience shipwreck in our faith. And so we're going to look at these dangers this morning. They're found in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Let me read this passage for us, and then we're going to talk about the three dangers that we see Paul outline here this morning. Paul says, "Therefore." Now remember, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask the question, Wherefore art thou therefore therefore? Okay, why is the therefore there? The therefore is there to point us back to what Paul just said. Here's the course to smooth sailing. I've just laid it out. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Find your identity in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says, Look, you are in smooth sailing with Jesus, but don't get shipwrecked. Don't let your faith be shipwrecked. And Paul, here in this passage, warns us of three dangers that have the potential to shipwreck our faith. What are the dangers that Paul highlights here? The first danger that he highlights for us here are the reefs of legalism. The reefs of legalism will shipwreck your faith. What is legalism? It's one of the oldest threats to a thriving faith in Jesus Christ. Legalism is the idea that our security with God doesn't fully rest on the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, but that our security with God also depends on our obedience to God's laws in the Old Testament or our compliance with man-made rules of behavior that's what legalism is that it's jesus plus the old testament laws or or following certain man-made rules of behavior in order to prove your devotion and your worthiness to god My my earliest memory and experience with legalism came when I was in junior high and uh, my family took a road trip out to the West Coast where my dad was doing some teaching. He was a Christian apologist and speaker and we were uh, traveling West. He was gonna be speaking at some churches there. I had cousins who lived in the San Diego area. And uh, we hadn't seen these cousins in a while. And so we were going to go and stay with our cousins for the week. And, and it was very interesting because as soon as we got to our cousin's house, it quickly became apparent that their kind of Christianity was very different from the Christianity that my family practiced. And and, and what I later discovered is that they had become a part of a very fundamentalist uh, baptist church where their salvation their faith wasn't simply about putting their trust in what jesus did for us on the cross but it was jesus plus keeping a whole series of man-made rules that proved you were in good standing with god so for example their family didn't have a television because tvs were world, worldly they, they weren't allowed to see movies so, so, like we talked about, you know hey let 's go down and rent a movie, and we don't, no, we don 't watch movies uh, their, their, their youth group, every Saturday morning, all the kids in their church youth group had to go door to door witnessing, and, and it wasn 't an option; it was just an expectation that if you 're a part of our church you 're going to go door to door throughout the community witnessing and, and so Saturday morning came along, and sure enough, they wrote me into going door to go door witnessing with them. We went Sunday night to the church that my dad was speaking at. and... My older cousin who was uh, in high school at this time, we sat down in the pews and he pulled out the hymnal and he says to me, my dad tells me you can can know a lot about a church by their hymnals. And I said, well, what do you mean? Do your hymnals have different songs in them? And he said, well, no, we have basically the same songs, but whoever published that hymnal, you can tell if this church is a liberal church or a faithful church based on who published the hymnals. And so again, it was this whole religious worldview that was not just based on God's word, but on a whole series of man-made rules and expectations that you had to follow in order to demonstrate that you were in fidelity with God. Now, when it comes to our passage here in the book of Colossians, in verse 16, we discover that legalism was one of the found, fundamental errors that was being promoted by the false teachers in Colossae. Listen to how Paul starts out in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you <clears throat> excuse me, in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, while Paul doesn't go into specifics for us here, we can discern from this opening admonition that the false teachers in Colossae were promoting a Jesus-plus kind of Christianity. And specifically, it was a form of Christianity that said Jesus alone wasn't sufficient for a right relationship with God. In addition to Jesus, you also needed to conform to various requirements of the Old Testament law, You had to keep the prescribed Jewish festivals, and you had to honor the Jewish Sabbath. In other words, you had to worship and refrain from work on Saturdays. And this is the requirements that these false teachers in Colossae were telling the the Christians there in Colossae that they had to follow in order to be right with God. Now, the problem with this is that these false teachers were passing judgment on the believers there over issues that no longer had relevance for followers of Jesus Christ. See, friends, the Old Testament law was originally given to God's people as a means of setting them apart from the pagan nations around them. And when you study the Old Testament laws, there were basically three Broad categories. There were civil laws which governed the day-to-day lifestyle of the Israelites. Uh, practices like what foods they can eat, and you know the types of clothing they would wear, and the fibers they would use. Even, I mean, how they would sow their fields and plow their fields. I mean, all kinds of rules that governed day-to-day life. There were then ceremonial laws which governed their religious practices. Those were laws having to do with the priests and the, the temple and the sacrifices. And then there were moral laws, which pertained to how we live morally, righteously in the eyes of a holy God. Now, here's the thing. Other than the moral laws, which were all reaffirmed by Jesus and found throughout the New Testament, the rest of the Old Testament law reached its expiration date. With the arrival of Jesus Christ. So the civil laws and the ceremonial laws no longer hold sway over followers of Jesus. But you see, the mistake of the false teachers in Colossae was thinking and promoting the idea that these aspects of the Old Testament law were intended to be permanent. And so they continued to apply the law as a mark of true faithfulness to God. But friends, that was never God's intention for the Old Testament law. The law was simply meant to be a temporary expression of devotion to God and point us to his ultimate plan of salvation through his son Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 17. If you have your Bibles open, after Paul tells them don't let them pass judgment over these things, in verse 17 Paul says these things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance Belongs to Christ. Now, friends, what Paul means by that is that the law was simply a shadow pointing us to the one who cast it, Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to what Jesus himself said about this matter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says in Luke 24 27 and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself you look to John 5 39 Jesus says to the Pharisees you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. See, what Jesus is saying in all of these passages is that the Old Testament laws were simply shadows that were being cast by him. They were shadows pointing God's people to him. We could go through the whole list of all the various laws. They were all intended to point us to Jesus. All the laws, all the festivals, all the Sabbath, right? Take Passover, for example. The Feast of Passover, the Passover festival. What was Passover all about? Passover was a festival that the Jews practiced to remember God's faithfulness in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And if you remember the story in the book of Exodus, God told Moses, I'm going to bring judgment against Pharaoh and all the people of Egypt. I'm going to have the, the angel of death is going to pass through Egypt and, and kill all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. But Moses, here's what you and and my people do. You'd find a spotless, perfect lamb. Okay, you find a spotless lamb. You kill that lamb, sacrifice it to me, and then you take the blood of that lamb and you smear it over the doorposts of your home. And when the angel of death passes through, the angel of death will see the blood of that spotless lamb covering your door and the angel of death will pass over your home and spare your children. And that's what Passover was all about. God kept his promise. He passed over the houses of the Israelites. Pharaoh then relented, let the Israelites go, and that was the beginning of their journey into the wilderness and ultimately moving into the promised land. And so even to this day, the Jews celebrate Passover as a remembrance of what God did for them. Now again, this Passover had a past remembrance, but Passover was also pointing us forward to jesus it was a shadow cast by jesus because what passover does is it actually points us to the true and perfect spotless lamb of god remember in john chapter 1 verse 29 john the baptist saw jesus approaching and what did john the baptist say behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world And Jesus was the perfect lamb of God, the spotless lamb of God. He was the lamb who sacrificed his life so that his blood could be applied to our sinful hearts so that God no longer sees our sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts and his wrath passes over us because of what Jesus did for us and his shed blood that covers us. And this is just one of many examples where the law was simply a shadow pointing us to Jesus. The false teachers in Colossae, with their legalistic mindset, they they were arguing that the Christians there needed to adhere to all of these Old Testament laws and the various festivals and keeping the Sabbath if they were going to be truly right with God. But Paul says, no, that's all shadows. You don't need to worry about the shadows. Focus on the substance. Jesus is the real thing. And friends, the question for us this morning is why would we pursue the shadows when we can have the real thing, Jesus Christ? Yesterday, a beautiful afternoon, right? My wife and I, we went for a walk together. And it was a bright sunny day and it was beautiful outside and we're walking down our our neighborhood street and, and my wife's shadow was right behind her. Now, friends, do you think when I saw my wife's shadow, I was like, oh, honey, look at that. Let me hold your shadow hand. Let, let, me, let me put my arm around your shadow, right? No, well, that would, be, that would be foolish, right? Why would I want the shadow when I can have the real thing? I want to hold her hand. I want to give her a hug, right? Like, I've got the substance there. And that's what Paul's saying. Don't be shipwrecked on, on, the, on, the, reefs of, on the reefs of legalism. Put your... Trust in the substance, in the real thing, Jesus Christ. Sadly, though, many today still find their faith shipwrecked on the reefs of legalism, believing there's something more they need to do in in order to earn God's favor, something more than simply trusting in the holy, sufficient, and finished work of Jesus Christ. But Paul says in verse 16, don't be judged on these terms. Right? Galatians 5, chapter 1, what does the Apostle Paul say? He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't allow the rituals and the legalism and the rule-keeping of the law to, to hold you back from experiencing true freedom in Jesus Christ. If Christ has set us free, why on earth would we shipwreck our faith by burdening ourselves, by the feeling that we need to keep the law? Paul says don't walk in the shadows when you can walk in the substance. Walk in Jesus. Now the second danger that Paul highlights for us here in our passage that has the potential to shipwreck our faith are are the sands of mysticism. It's possible as you're sailing the waters of a thriving faith with Jesus to all of a sudden run aground on the sands of mysticism. Now what does this mean? When we talk about mysticism here, we're talking about seeking mystical and supernatural experiences with God. Putting our faith and resting our faith on these supernatural experiences rather than the revelation God has given to us in the person of Jesus and in his word. My my first experience with this kind of mystical, experiential kind of Christianity was when I was in seminary. I got involved. My former youth pastor uh, planted a church in downtown Minneapolis called Solomon's Porch. And this this church, which to, uh, today has has taken the label of an emergent church, uh, it's a church which their philosophy is we're trying to reach the postmodern world. And the postmodern world isn't interested in, in rational study and sermons and Bible study. They, they want experiences right they want these you know mystical supernatural encounters with god and, and so the the whole goal of of Solomon's ports which i was involved in at the time was about creating experiential worship services where people could mystically encounter god and, and so you'd come into our our church area where we met and there'd be candles all over the place and there was incense and there were all these you know christian icons and symbolism all over the place and and uh, and it was all about creating an environment where people could have an experience uh, of encountering god and, and, and our worship service wasn't about singing and studying God's word together. It was about engaging in these various practices like contemplative prayer and, and Lectio Divina where we would read a Bible verse over and over and over again and then after reading that Bible verse repeatedly many times you would meditate on it and then we would all share our personal opinions about what God was speaking to us through that verse. Our our, our pastor didn't preach from the Bible, rather he had sermon discussions where he would read the passage and then everybody would just weigh in on what their personal interpretation of the passage was. Even when we took communion, it was all about creating an experience and taking communion. And so, uh, you know, even here we've had times where we'll have we'll come forward and take communion, right? But but there it was all about like how do we keep raising the experience, raising the bar of the experience. And so, I mean, we got to the point where we we weren't even just using bread anymore for communion; we were using like flavored bread, chocolate chip bread, and all kinds, you know, because it was all about heightening the experience, and it ultimately became more about the experience that we could manufacture than about the truth that God had communicated to us. Well, needless to say, I ended up walking away from that church and thankfully found my way back to a more biblically faithful type of Christianity. But here's the thing. This is very similar to what was happening in Colossae. The false teachers in Colossae, if you look at verses 18 and 19, not only were they promoting legalism, but they were promoting these mystical, supernatural, experiential encounters with God. Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ. These false teachers were basically telling the Colossian Christians, look, it's not just Jesus. you got to have Jesus. Plus, you got to keep all of these Old Testament laws. And by the way, you can have these mystical, supernatural experiences if you engage in these visions where you can actually encounter angels and you can see angels and you can worship with the angels. And these people were being all puffed up with pride, Paul says, by claiming that they had had these supernatural, mystical experiences that the rest of the people hadn't had. Now, friends, understand, what's the problem with turning Christianity into the pursuit of experiences with God? Okay, understand me right here tonight, this morning. Having an experience with God isn't necessarily a bad thing, okay? The difference is when we put the experience first and that becomes the goal, having the experience versus simply trusting in God by faith and worshiping him solely because of who he is, not seeking to pursue and manufacture these experiences with him, okay? It's okay to have an experience with God, but the experience isn't the purpose. And Paul here in verses 18 through 19 says, lists five dangers for us now he doesn't list them the way I'm going to list them but you, we can deduce these five dangers in verses 18 through 19 about pursuing mystical experiences let, let me read this ver- the, the passage again and then I want to highlight the five dangers Paul highlights here Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, again, who is Jesus Christ. What are the dangers that we can encounter in pursuing a mystical, experiential type of faith? Well, number one, experiences can breed a false sense of pride right like man i had this amazing experience with god i had this vision god spoke to me oh wait he didn't speak to you oh oh well, you haven't had that vision wow i guess i'm something pretty special right so experiences can breed a false sense of pride number 2 experiences are subjective and because they're subjective they're prone to error and deception right You hear from God or you have a vision and all of a sudden you come to the church with your interpretation of that vision. God spoke to me. This is what God wants us to do. Friends, that's just your personal subjective experience. How are we to judge whether that's truly from God or not, right? When he gives one person an experience that the rest of the people don't have, right? And not only is it prone to error, but... Is it not true that our spiritual adversary, the devil, can't manufacture false experiences, right? Paul says, 2 Corinthians, uh, Satan comes disguised as an angel of light seeking whom he may deceive, right? So, So again, experiences aren't necessarily bad, but you gotta be careful because you're prone to error and they can be used by our enemy to deceive us. Number three, experiences can feed our worldly desires. All right, experiences are a lot like the Halloween candy your kids are going to get next week, right? They'll give you a quick rush, but they won't sustain, right? I mean, you'll get a quick little sugar high, but they're not going to fill you up. And that's the problem. If you put experiences as the goal of your faith, you're always going to be seeking more and better and greater experiences. Number four, experiences can take our focus off of Christ, Again, the whole point becomes more about pursuing the experience than trusting wholly in Jesus, the one who is the head, Paul describes here. And then, fifthly, experiences don't sustain corporate growth because, again, they're they're individual, they're subjective. And, And corporate growth comes when we come together, not with our individual subjective experiences but to study God's objective revealed truth given universally to all of us in the person of Jesus and in his word, okay? It's God's word, Jesus Christ, the head from which the body grows. That's what Paul tells us here in our passage, all right? So again, we need to be on guard against this mystical experiential type of worship experience, A few years ago, Pastor Rick and I, we had a lady come to our church, and she claimed that she spoke to God. She claimed that God was giving her revelations. And she had this, she had notebooks, stacks of notebooks, where she had been recording the the visions and revelations God had been giving to her. And and she came to us, and she said, look at God has a word for your church, and and I'm his medium to, to share his truth with your church. Well, we started reading what she claimed were her revelations from God. And her revelations, her so-called revelations from God, had nothing to do with God's word. They didn't correspond at all to God's word. In in fact, they were outright heresy. And so we had to lovingly but firmly tell her, look it, you can't be promoting this stuff at our church. And, And we had to kindly show her the door. All right, because again, anyone who comes claiming that they're hearing from God or they've received a revelation from God, how do you test if that's true or not? You test it based on God's prior revelation in scripture because God is consistent. His nature is immutable. He does not change. When he tells us one thing in his word, he's not going to give us a revelation that contradicts what he's already told us. And so again, if somebody claims to speak for God, you have to test what they're saying by God's ultimate authority, God's word. That's a huge temptation in our culture today. A lot of people want to have these, experience, these mystical experiences of, of hearing from God. I want God to speak to me, right? Friends, if you want to hear from God, read your Bible. This is God's word. And if you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> All right? This is where God has spoken to us and revealed truth to us. Now, if we're not to pursue mystical experiences, what should we be pursuing? The Apostle Peter tells us, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Peter says, "...his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises." so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world and of sinful desire. What is Peter saying? God's given us everything we need. What has he given us? He's given us Jesus, and he's given us his precious promises found in his word. Amen. Friends, we don't need anything more. We don't need to pursue anything more. It's a, if God gives you an experience, praise the Lord, but test it by God's word. Tested against the person and authority of Jesus Christ. That has to be our ultimate bedrock upon which we stand. Now, there's a third danger Paul tells us about here in our passage that has the potential to shipwreck our faith, and this is the rocks of asceticism. What is asceticism? Asceticism is the belief that the physical world, including our bodies, is all evil and that only the spirit is good and the spiritual realm is good. And so the idea behind asceticism is that we need to deny our bodies and our physical desires. We need to mortify, mortify our flesh in order to grow spiritually. And again, this is one of the oldest religious deceptions in history. It can shipwreck your faith. It's a deception that's found in all kinds of religious traditions. Even in Christianity, Throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been those who have sought to practice asceticism, the denial of the flesh, thinking that that would be the key to spiritual growth. For example, in the 4th century, there was a monk in Egypt named Macarius... And Macarius, he decided that the world around him was evil, so he was going to deny his flesh. He moved into a swamp for six months, where he lived naked for six months in a swamp. When he finally came out, he had been bitten so horribly by African gnats and bugs that his flesh was literally decaying. It looked like he was a leper. But again, he was seeking to deny the flesh in order to grow spiritually. You have other people like Simeon Stylites, a monk in Syria in the 5th century. Simeon, trying to escape from this world, he moved up to a 60-foot-tall pillar where he lived on a 1-meter-by-1-meter platform, 60 feet up in the air, so that he would be free from any temptations of this world. He lived there for 36 years on top of a 60-foot-high pillar. Kids would raise buckets of food up to him, and he would lower buckets of other stuff. (laughs) And this went on in the elements, in the sun, in the rain, in the hot, in the cold, for 36 years, trying to grow spiritually by denying his flesh. There was another guy in the 14th century, a German monk named Henry Suso. Henry Suso wore undergarments day and night, studded with hundreds of sharp tacks trying to abuse his flesh, because the flesh is evil. It's the spirit that's good. That didn't work. So he built a wooden cross with 30 spikes, and he slept on this wooden cross with spikes for eight years. Again, trying to deny the flesh. And friends, there are literally hundreds of examples like these that we could describe this morning. But as Paul tells us here in verses 20 to 23, these kinds of ascetic practices aren't at all rooted in Scripture and have nothing to do with the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says again about these things. If if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, now remember the elemental spirits we talked about last week, these are demonic forces that... Promote these false philosophies like asceticism. Since you died to these things through Christ, why as if you were still alive to the world, you submit to their regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's the denial of the flesh. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They look spiritual on the outside. Wow, look at that guy, man. He's just totally separating himself from the world. I mean, he's living up on a pillar for Pete's sake. How spiritual must you be? Paul says, that's not spirituality. That's worldliness. That's false philosophy. That's the flesh. And by the way, you're never going to deal with your heart's condition by living up on a pillar or wearing a hair shirt studded with spikes. Because all of the external stuff that we do can never deal with our heart's condition. And it's only the transformation that comes through the gospel and the Holy Spirit that can correct our hearts. The great reformer Martin Luther, he once said this, it is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Friends, religious activity can't save us. And if religious activity can't save us, in fact, if it will shipwreck your faith, where do we put our hope? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, There there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh on the cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Friends, how do we have a right relationship with God? It's not through legalism. It's not through seeking mystical experiences. It's not through denying our flesh. It's by putting our trust wholly in what Jesus Christ did for us. And it's only Jesus that can ultimately transform our hearts. You create all the rules you want. You know what you're going to discover? The more rules you create, the more rules you break. Because a sinful heart can never be transformed by keeping rules or external stuff. It's only Jesus who can transform our hearts. And so we need to put our hope solely in Jesus Christ. That's where life is found. That's where victory is found. That's where peace with God is truly found. In a moment, John's going to come up and lead us in a final song. I want to invite you to stand with me and let's pray. And first and foremost, thank Jesus for what he's done for us and freeing us from all of these various dangers of the flesh that can shipwreck our faith. Let's give thanks for his amazing grace and let's recommit to living our lives focused solely on him and the good news of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word to lead us and to guide us and to point us to you, the, the, the substance of so that we don't play around in the shadows, but we, we can walk with the real thing, walk in a life-giving, saving, joy-filled relationship with you, the God who made us, the God who, who loves us, the God who wanted us to be free from the, the burden and guilt and shame of our sin so badly that you were willing to come into this world in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and you went to the cross, and you gave your life so that we could have life lord i pray that we wouldn't allow our faith to be shipwrecked by by the false philosophies and ideas and in these man-made concepts that are so prevalent in our world that lead us away from a pure and simple devotion to you and a trust and commitment to your revealed word lord help us to set a course for for smooth sailing that's fixed solely on the good news of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. amazing grace our chains are gone what a blessing that is friends don't allow your faith to be shipwrecked on the reefs of legalism the sands of mysticism the rocks of asceticism keep your eyes holy on the good news of the gospel of jesus let me leave you with this benediction from second peter chapter 3 verse 18 and now grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you and have a great week. Hey friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.